You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'm exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN and beyond. Imagine you're getting ready for a doctor's visit and you've got questions about sexual health. You feel kind of awkward, right? Now, imagine being a teenager with those same questions. That feeling, that awkwardness right there, is exactly why doctors like Paula Cody are so important. Dr. Cody is a pediatrician with UW Health and a member of the UW-Madison Department of Pediatrics faculty. She specializes in adolescent medicine. In this episode of the Women's Health Cast, we discussed how she helps set young people at ease while addressing their complicated sexual health questions. I'm very pleased today to be talking to Dr. Paula Cody from the UW Department of Pediatrics. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. So you are a pediatrician. You're fellowship trained in adolescent medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me about your practice. What does your day-to-day look like? So um, let's back up and describe adolescent medicine, because I think a lot of listeners actually have no idea what adolescent medicine is. So like you said, after medical school, I did three years of pediatrics residency and then a three-year fellowship in adolescent medicine. Um, that fellowship, depending on where you're trained, can, can be very different, but my fellowship focused on sexual and reproductive health and eating disorders. So a typical day for me, I will see um, patients in my outpatient clinic. Four days a week, I'm with the Department of Peds and patients can be someone with an eating disorder, someone with um, period concerns, um, someone who is transgender and looking for puberty blocking, someone who has some other risk-taking behaviors, things like that. Um, Things that might take a little bit longer than a general pediatrician has in office. And we do a lot of focus on the social history and risk-taking behaviors. One day a week, I'm with University Health Services at the college, and I do the medical management of eating disorders on the college campus. So you mentioned that um, your fellowship focused on sexual and reproductive health mm-hmm. as well as eating disorders, and that's kind of exactly why I wanted to talk to you today. Um, on this podcast, I've talked to a lot of different people about sexual health, but I'm mostly talking to OBGYNs who work with adult patients. Um, and thinking about a pediatric practice, it seems like your uh, conversations must be a little different. Like they might include more of a sex ed aspect mm-hmm. almost to a certain extent than an adult gynecologist. So what kind of sexual health counseling do you end up offering adolescent patients? Right. I actually hope that my counseling supplements the counseling, the sexual health education that they've gotten both at school and at home. Um, the counseling that we do, a lot of it is making sure that they know the proper names for the anatomy, making sure that um, they know what's happening when they go through puberty because there's a lot of changes that aren't discussed either at home or at school and people have questions about. Um, we also spend a fair amount of time talking about healthy relationships and consent and the importance of safer sexual health and protecting yourself against pregnancy and against sexually transmitted infections. We talk a lot about how things can change your um, ability to consent. So we talk about substance abuse and sometimes how that can lower your inhibitions and make you um, consent to things you wouldn't normally consent to. What are some of the most common um, like sexual health, reproductive health questions that you get from your teen patients? You get a lot of period questions, lots of period questions. Periods are too heavy or too long or painful or 
my skin changes, my mood changes, or they don't come often enough. So period questions we get a lot of. We get also a lot of people coming because they want to explore what their um, contraception options are and how they can prevent pregnancy because there are a lot of um, providers out there who aren't comfortable discussing things like long-acting reversible contraceptives with their um, teen patients because they, they, when they had trained, it was not considered great for them, where now the long-acting reversible contraceptives are top choice for teens as well. So that was actually one of my questions, is if um, things like the IUD or the implant are um, okay for younger patients. So. Absolutely. We, absolutely. Um, we spend a lot of time doing some counseling or education of both the patient and their parents, because parents may have heard some myths about the long-acting reversible contraceptives as well, and their, you know, history um, a while ago, there were maybe some not appropriate long-acting reversal contraceptives that would not be appropriate for teens. So we spend a lot of time correcting those myths as well. Um, as, as long as the counseling is done in a comprehensive manner and in a logical manner, most teenagers can uh, follow along, and we actually have great success rates of teenagers choosing the long-acting reversible contraceptives as long as it's presented in an acceptable way. So in addition to presenting the information in kind of a logical, understandable, um, comprehensive way. I can imagine some of these conversations being un uncomfortable from maybe from the patient side coming in and not knowing how to ask a question. So how do you try to set people at ease as you get your appointments started? Mm -hmm. It's all about building rapport. And that's something that you probably find with adolescent med medicine physicians throughout the country is that we know a little bit about everything pop culture. So whenever someone comes in with some interest, I can talk to them for an hour about that interest. We have to be able to build rapport. And after we make them feel more comfortable in our clinic, make sure that their questions that they ask are, are answered, we go through in a very um, non-emotional, logical, comprehensive way of presenting information. We have pictures, we have things that they can touch, and also making sure that they understand that some of the horror stories that they've heard about things is not actually accurate. When you have appointments with teens, are there adults in the room with them the whole time? That's a great question. So depending on how the visit is set up, sometimes the teens are roomed without the adult in the room. Sometimes the adult is roomed with the teen in the room. But regardless of how the visit starts, every teenager gets a little bit alone time with the provider. Um, things that we discuss during those times include risk-taking behaviors, including sexual health, period concerns, menstrual concerns in people who have ovaries, um, and healthy relationships and consent, and any mental health concerns, including any thoughts of hurting themselves. And we spend a lot of that time alone discussing how they can have certain conversations with their parents, because even if the parent or guardian is not in the room, we want to make sure that we can help foster lines of communication between the teenager and their parent or guardian, because these conversations are really important to have and can't just occur in the doctor's office. Some parents get very concerned about what happens when the parents are out of the room, uh, thinking that we're actually helping them hide their risk-taking behaviors, and that's never the point. Our, our, we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that the lines of communication between the teenager and their parents or guardians are open. The other aspect that is really beneficial to having some alone time with that teenager is making sure that they can practice being um, their own healthcare advocate. And at some point, these teenagers are going to be adults, and the parent is not going to be with them, and they need to know how to be 
um, good healthcare consumers. Every year, I have someone coming to the college campus at 18, and I ask, what medicine are they on? And they're like, I don't know, some white pill. And I'll say, what's that white pill for? And they're like, I don't know. I should call my mom. And you just kind of think like, well, part of our jobs of healthcare providers is helping them to be good healthcare consumers when they're adults and the parents aren't available. Do you ever end up spending any time talking to the parents about how to facilitate those conversations with their young people? I do, actually. And so um, uh, in eating disorder visits in particular, the um, language around eating disorders is very, very particular. And a lot of times what a parent or guardian is saying is not what the teenager with the eating disorder is hearing. So visits with me, um, if, a, if a patient is coming for an eating disorder, is usually spent with me, the parent, and the child in the room all together. Then I spend room with the teenage, or time with the teenager in the clinic room on their own, time with the parent on their own, and then we wrap things up all together again. And a lot of times it's discussing with the parent, these are some conversations that you may want to breach with your child, or this is something that the, your teenager had told me that they heard you say, whether or not you actually said it, this is what they heard, and this is how this should maybe be phrased in the future. So I kind of want to pivot back to um, sexual and reproductive health, because I think that's where we'll end up seeing a lot of overlap between um, your practice and then the practice of some of our um, obstetrician gynecologists. And in particular, one area I think of a lot is the HPV vaccine. Um, you know, a lot of the OBGYNs in our department are really, really passionate about increasing the vaccination rate because they're seeing um, the effects of not being vaccinated further down the line mm-hmm. when they're working with patients who are presenting with cervical cancer or cervical dysplasia or something. Um, and we also know that compared to other vaccines that are kind of given at a younger age, HPV has like a really, really low uptake rate. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you talk to patients and the adults in their lives about this vaccine, which I know can be kind of fraught to bring up because of the implication it's related to a sexually transmitted infection. Right. Well, so is hepatitis B, and we've never had any issues with uptake of hepatitis B, right? That's an excellent point, yeah. <laughs> so um, we for HPV, it's very important to not focus on how HPV is transmitted, but focus on what this vaccine can prevent. And um, there's lots of science behind the HPV vaccine that the earlier you get it, the better immune response you have. In fact, if you get it before the age of 15, you only need two shots now instead of three. So that's sometimes a bonus for the the teenagers who don't want an extra shot. And so they can hopefully get the series completed before the age of 15 and only get their two shots. Um, But again, focusing on not just cervical cancer, which is where I think it overlaps a lot with um, OB-GYN because of obviously pap smears and cervical cancer, but also um, trying to increase the uptake for males. It helps that there's been a lot of research that HPV-related cancers are some of the top causes of cancer in males, especially in the head and neck area. And there has been some, um, I feel like there also needs to be some education as far uh, amongst the pediatricians of the world, making sure that they are presenting the HPV, HPV vaccine in the appropriate way. Again, not focusing on just women's cancer and not focusing on how it's transmitted, but on the all the other cancers that it can prevent as well. I've had um, a patient come to me saying that their pediatrician, not in this area, but the pediatrician had said um, guys are only vaccinated against HPV to protect the girls, which of course turned the mom off of providing the HPV vaccine for her child. And so there's a lot of education, not just amongst the parents and guardians and patients, but also amongst the other providers as well. Um, what about counseling for other sexually transmitted infections? How do you 
talk to patients, and this gets back to me too about um, counseling about some risk-taking behaviors. Mm-hmm. So how do you talk to your patients about their STI risks? We um, One of the important things is, is to normalize the conversation completely and to even fall back about on, upon some recommendations from the United States Preventive Service Task Force about screening people for sexually transmitted infections even if they don't have any symptoms. A lot of times people... Um, feel a certain stigma associated even with the discussion about sexually transmitted infections. And um, if we can completely normalize the conversation, say we do this for everyone, usually the um, uptake of the or the agreement to screening is much, much higher. Um, and making sure that they know that we're, even if you don't have any symptoms, we still do, that's why it's called screening. We're actually looking for an infection that may not have symptoms. And these symptoms, if we, or I'm sorry, in this infection, if you have it, and we don't treat it, can have a lot of long-term com- um, complications, including um, difficulty getting pregnant when you're ready to get pregnant. This is a very important conversation to have because with the um, increasing uptake of the long-acting reversible contraceptives, I feel like a lot of teenagers have so much confidence in their birth control that sometimes the the other aspect of prevention kind of slips out of their brain. And so we spend a lot of time focusing in all our contraceptive talks about, remember, this is excellent at preventing pregnancy. It's not 100%. The only 100% way to not get pregnant is to not have sex, which, again, some people are concerned we're not promoting abstinence, which we always are, but we're, we have to make sure we're being complete in our counseling. But as well, um, that even though this is really good at preventing pregnancy, this doesn't do anything to help you prevent infections. So you need to be comfortable having conversations with your partners. Make sure you and your partners get screened for infections and make sure you wear a condom. You mentioned um, doing doing more to normalize the conversation mm-hmm. and um, make it more comfortable. And so there's something you do that I really love. You run the Growing Up Healthy blog at UW Health, or you're at the very least a very frequent and oh, amazing... The T blog, the rites of passage teen aspect of yeah. Growing Up Healthy. I love that blog, and I read thank all you. of your posts no, every you. time. Um, and I think they do this amazing job of sort of taking topics that can be really uncomfortable, like you just put one out about periods, and that can be really hard to ask about when you're a young mm-hmm. woman just starting. Um and make them like very accessible and comfortable and really easy to understand and kind of funny and clever and just very mm-hmm. engaging. Um, why do you think resources like your blog are really important for helping um, young people be a little bit more health literate and comfortable talking about these things? Um, I think with the um, abundance of information that's available to people, it's hard to distinguish what is medically accurate and evidence-based versus what is someone's opinion, which can be completely wrong. And I think it's really important to make sure we keep providing medically accurate, evidence-based information to our patients and to their parents. And um, one of the things we make sure to do in each of our blogs is to make sure when we're referencing an article, making sure it is a a good article that is evidence-based and published in a a peer-reviewed journal. it's also really important to make sure that people understand that legislation that may be taking place or news tidbits that might be going on or even research articles that are, um, sounds like, why would that have to do with me? How, how we can make sure that the teenagers and their parents really understand that this is how this piece of legislation would impact you. This is how this news story actually impacts you. This is how this possibly really hard to um, understand research paper how that actually impacts you as a patient. And our blog is actually 
twofold. For the uh, the other way, I have a lot of times um, either pediatrics residents or medical students helping me write the blog, and it's for them. It's actually very important to make sure that they can break down a very difficult, complicated topic and make it funny and humorous, and be able to talk about it in a very straightforward manner with the teenagers. So it's it's education both for the teenagers, young adults, and their um, their supportive people, and also for the the residents and pediatrics residents, I'm sorry, pediatrics residents and medical students going out there who are going to be having these conversations with um, with their patients in the future. As I was getting ready to talk to you, I was thinking so much about um, how do you, um, I mean, how do we help patients be more health literate and ready for these conversations? But um, I'm kind of realizing listening to you talk that it's got to be a little difficult from both sides of it. So what do you think are the most important um skills or traits that a doctor can bring to these conversations to make sure that they're really effective and really comfortable and that everybody kind of gets the information they need. Right. So for in any interaction dealing with a teenager, there's a couple things that are really important. One, you need to ask open-ended questions because the more yes or no questions you're going to ask, the more yes or no answers you're going to get. And then sometimes that effectively shuts down that conversation or that line of questioning. So asking open-ended questions is very important. Also, making sure you can you practice those questions a lot, which we see um, medical students coming in never having asked a sexual history before. They get really embarrassed. They get their blush, and they kind of fumble over their words. If you're uncomfortable asking that question, that patient's going to be uncomfortable giving you an answer. And so making sure that you you're practice your wording and with all social histories, we start with uh, least intimidating questions. Um, it's done in the format called HEADS. So H for home, like home life, E for education, A for activities, D for probably drugs. <laughs> I can't think of it in my D for drugs, S for safety, S for sexuality, and S for suicide and other mental health. And if you do it in that order, you're starting with the least intimidating questions and working your way into the more intimidating questions. You have some time to build rapport and make the patient feel more at ease. So telling me who lives at home, tell me about your school, what's your favorite subject, going in that order and then getting into the, you know, tell me about the relationship you're in. Do you feel safe? Tell me about your um, about your sexual activity and um, tell me about your, your, you know, feelings are, do you feel like you might hurt yourself at some times? Because these are all important questions to ask. Suicide right now is the number two cause of death in adolescence. And if we don't ask it, then they're not going to necessarily come forward with that information. I can really hear that you were very passionate about this. Um, what brought you to this area of practice? It's a great question. Um, when I was an undergrad, I worked both as a rape crisis counselor and a, um, I helped with a student organization on campus that, um, that kind of corrected the abstinence-only sexual health education we had in Wisconsin at the time. And so sexual and reproductive health, I felt like, was something that had, that had the potential for lasting impacts and was not taught well in teenagers. And so this was a fun group and just got um, thinking about how important these discussions were having, uh, that how important these discussions were to have. And then as I went through medical school, at one point I actually thought I was going to maybe do um, OB-GYN, and I decided um, I had more fun when the babies were delivered instead of actually delivering the babies. But I also really liked the gynecology aspect of it and the reproductive health or sexual and reproductive health associated with gynecology. And I was also 
really interested in mental health aspects. And I think I just, I stumbled upon adolescent medicine and it ended up being a perfect fit. So I know that like when I'm getting ready for my doctor's appointments, I kind of go in with this list of questions in my head, or maybe they're even written down on my phone. And um, I would say like eight, eight times out of 10, I chicken out somehow either, oh, we've run out of time. It's fine. I don't need to, mm-hmm. or wow, I just, I cannot verbalize this. Um, and I'm a grown adult and it's still really hard sometimes to approach different topics. So how, how can young adults and, and their, their adults, the adults in their lives, um, better prepare for appointments with their pediatricians to make sure that all their questions are getting answered and feel comfortable and ready mm-hmm. to talk about everything that they need to talk about? That's a great question, and I'm not sure that there's one easy answer for it. What you do is, um, what you are doing is writing down your questions ahead of time is actually very helpful, making sure that things don't get lost in the shuffle. However, I think bringing those up at the beginning of the appointment is actually more helpful than waiting till the end because that can ensure that we have enough time to actually fully address your concerns. The other thing that um, has been happening a little bit more frequently now is that patients contact me in advance of the appointments, like with a MyChart message um, or a phone call saying, these are the things I want to make sure we cover. And whenever I go into a room knowing exactly what they want to cover in advance, it's actually very helpful. And you know, some of the things that I think are important to cover may not be what they think is important to cover, and so we have to find time to cover both. That's a great idea. I don't know why I haven't thought to do that, too. (laughs) Yeah. Send in my chart message. Perfect. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. This was fun. On the next episode, we'll discuss the pelvic floor with Dr. Christine Heisler. The pelvic floor is this incredibly important system of muscles that helps keep our insides on our inside but we probably don't think about it until something goes wrong. Dr. Heisler, who's a female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgeon in the UW Department of OBGYN, tells us about some of the most common pelvic floor problems and how to treat and prevent them. Women's HealthCast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's HealthCast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WISCOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening. <laughs>